Hey, Jonathan here. So just a quick reminder in case you missed the little teaser that we put out a few weeks ago, this is not going to be your typical Filmlings episode. We are on break, and so what we're doing this month is releasing a commentary track that Alex and I recorded a few years ago on The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Now, this was recorded for the uh, Patreon subscribers at the time, and if you want to get the actual commentary versions where you can hit play, watch along with us, and uh, go through it with the movies, then you can find that on the Patreon. And if you like this one and you want to listen to the Two Towers and the Return of the King commentary, those are also on the Patreon. But for this episode, what I've done here is actually kind of taken out all the gaps where we're just watching the movie and not talking about it so that the whole commentary kind of flows more like a podcast. Although, of course, we'll be referencing uh, specific scenes in the movie and stuff like that. Uh, but there's a lot of other um, discussion of Lord of the Rings lore and film techniques and stuff that if you've seen them before, you can probably follow along uh, and just visualize the films in your head. And these are for the extended editions, so there is kind of a disc break in the middle. But after condensing all of the audio, it's about our normal podcast length. So they're both discs worth of the Fellowship of the Ring extended edition are in this podcast. All right, with all that out of the way, please enjoy the commentary. Welcome to the Filmlings Commentary. A special commentary where we watch all of the Lord of the Rings films in one day. Yeah, we love these movies. So today we're going to be doing a commentary of... All three of the Lord of the Rings films by Peter Jackson, uh, and they are the extended editions. So make sure that the discs you're watching are extended or else we will get out of sync at some point. Um, and I guess without further ado, uh, start your DVD on the count of play in three, two, one, play. Ah, uh, yes. Well, it makes sense. That's PG-13. Parents strongly cautioned. New Line Cinema. This logo has so much nostalgia for me. What what year did this film come out again? I feel like that's important when we consider the special effects. Yeah, they were each... I remember it because it's 2001, 2002, 2003. And they were all shot at once? They were all shot at once and released a year apart. All right, so this is a it turn was like of a, the millennia shoot, basically. Oh, man, I wish I remember how many... I think it was 180 shoot days or something like that. Yeah. That's how you set up a movie. <laughs> it's so dramatic. I love that they stuck with that embossed title from, from the book cover. Yeah. Oh, look at those hyped up glowing highlights. Yeah, this is a really, really good way to set up a world, like really quickly. You know, we get all the races. You know, this is actually part of the poem that is at the beginning of all the books to kind of set up the whole deal um but you know kind of just jumping in to this whole world this hey guys here's a map here's where everything is yeah hey alex you think that's the bad guy i don't know is he wearing a lot of metal is there cg fire flowing up around him <laughs> oh gosh that costume must be heck to wear yeah like oof okay the effects on the ring where the text appears really good I mean, I mean, it holds up. I think beautifully. all the effects in these movies hold up better than some of the movies that are released now hold up. That's true. Oh, here we go. We get our first glimpse of Massive. Uh, what a digital's program that they created to create 
uh, basically AI armies where they have individual uh, characters moving in distinct ways and massive is used for basically any any movie with giant war films now you can tell he's a main character because he doesn't have a helmet <laughs> Elrond don't care it's supposed to be Aragorn's dad, right? No, that's... Look, Isildur is one of Aragorn's distant grandfathers. I don't remember if Isildur is uh, Arathorn's father or if there's another in between them. I'm sorry, Dad, for yeah. all of the facts that I get wrong during this commentary. More massive, massive effects. All, it's all brilliant and epic and... A lot to take in right quick, but it's got you going. And this voiceover is doing a good job of connecting all of this information all at once to keep you grounded in it so that you don't get disoriented before the story really gets going. Kate Blanchett is the one voiceover to rule them all. Please silence your cell phones now. The funny thing is, I typically always have my cell phone on silent. I just turned it off silent because I knew you were picking me up. That was a kind of obvious process effect, but still not distracting. We're like five minutes into this movie, and we must have seen like 10 weeks worth of production work. I know. I was thinking that. I was like, a bunch of those sets and locations, like, never seen again, just used for this prologue. Hooking the audience is important. You gotta, you gotta spend time on it. You gotta spend money on it. And here we get The Hobbit condensed into uh, <clears throat> one minute which is probably a more descriptive one minute than the six hours that the other movies turned into. Those mountains are quite misty. I always find it interesting that in the Hobbit movies, they, they've already filmed this. Like, they have this as part of the Lord of the Rings movies, and then they made the way that the ring is found different in the Hobbit movies, where he falls into a, a mushroom or something. A lot of really nice landscape shots. Yeah. Thank you, Akira Kurosawa, for letting us point the camera at the sun. Ian Holm. That's not Martin Freeman. And now we conveniently guide through the map, so we again are still situated in this world. We know where we are, where all those events took place, and when. And now we continue our exposition with uh, an entire scene of description about these people that are going to be super important for the rest of the movie. Ah, look at all that nice, warm, golden light. Super comfortable, super nice, super welcoming. This is the easily the most comfortable place, the most homey place in the entire three movies. Yeah. I mean, you think about the fact that The Hobbit starts with a whole paragraph on uh, how a hobbit hole is not a dirty, dingy hole, but a, a nice, warm, comfortable hole. That's literally part of the... The first pages of The Hobbit, and we're seeing that visually here. Nice handwriting. So what all did they do to accomplish the size effect in this movie? Obviously, there's going to be a lot of perspective shots. Um, I don't think they make cows that big. <laughs> so I'm guessing they used either little people or children? They did. They used literally every uh, size effect you can think of in this movie at one point or another. But yeah, I think a lot of this is little people um, and uh, yeah, I think most of these are just, you know, 
smaller people that kind of fit. And then maybe some of them that don't have uh, animals and stuff in them, they kind of just build the sets larger. Hey, it's the Goonies. And this isn't even just like just general exposition. Like all of these shots we've been seeing lead us into a plot point also. Yeah, right. If you're going to have to spend all that time explaining Hobbits, you might as well have what they're doing in those shots. Yeah, you might as well set up a party that we're about to see. Yeah, be relevant to the plot as well as the story. And this is how we introduce one of the most powerful characters in the entire film. With Gandalf humming, strolling through the woods. Man, Frodo's eyes were so intense there. I know. (laughs) I feel like some process was done on those eyes. And some of the behind the scenes, you hear the other Hobbit actors talking about Elijah Wood like he just came into the world like just so amazed at everything his eyes were always just huge that's how you set up a friendship in two seconds I know I was like I was thinking what a better way to create sympathy between these two characters who are both going to probably have the roughest brunt of it throughout the movie it's still really bright, still really warm, it's still really idyllic, but the uh, the highlights aren't pushed so hard that they're glowing like they were in the flashback. And yeah. the shadows aren't nearly as low as they were. I'm going to try to avoid quoting because that's not helpful at all during a commentary. Slight change in the score. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Howard scores... Howard, Howard Shore's score <laughs> for this film is... Uh, Absolutely brilliant. Who scored this score? Howard Shaw scored this score. <laughs> what could he possibly be looking for? That rasping breath already reminding us of Gollum. Enjoy how clean their faces and clothes are now, folks. <laughs> Pre-shadowing? Is that a thing? Barely involved. <laughs> that's one of those uh, little exchanges that's really... I mean, it it makes sense and it helps push the story and plot along for those who don't know about The Hobbit. But for those who do, it functions as a nice little Easter egg. Yeah. For those who are in the know. But it doesn't subtract for people who have no idea. Yeah, it doesn't beg for an explanation. Yeah. Ah, the Sackville Bagginses. I think everyone should have one of those signs whenever they're putting on a party. So would they have to build multiple sets to accommodate the, the perspective changes? Yeah, so they they had several things. I think they did have a couple um, hobbit holes, but they would also do things like bigotures, where they would have... um, It sounds like something that should be offensive, but I know it's not. (laughs) Well, you know, you create miniatures in a lot of films in order to create um, perspective and... Uh, you know, like in old classic films, you see the castle on a hill is really just a little toy that someone has painted meticulously. Um, but in this film, they made almost scale or more than scale uh, replicas of things like people, like these big stilt walkers, basically, that would uh, walk around in the foreground and act as the normal sized people to the hobbits. So this this shot here, actually, not this one, but the one previous where we see them interacting and Bilbo's taking the, the hat and staff almost felt like a composite shot, like it was shot twice over. And then I'm not sure. Together. I know they did that a lot in the Hobbit movies, but I don't think they did as much green screen in these movies. I think they did more um, practical effects in these than green screen for those scale shots anyway. 
There's plenty of green screen later when we get to Balrogs and stuff like that. There's even conflict here in the Shire. Not much, but some. It serves to have it there, though, just to show like that how the types of problems differ. Yeah. Annoying yeah. neighbors is a far cry from invading Mordor. Essentially first world problems for hobbits. I mean, the Shire is surprisingly left alone compared to everywhere else in this world. Right. And that's the whole point. Lots of foreshadowing and omniscient things happening. Or a... What's the word I'm looking for? Ominous things, not omniscient things. But here, especially around the table, I know they did things where they would like cut the table in half so that they could have um, Ian Holm much farther away from Ian McKellen. And then as even as the camera moves, the table moves to it. So it looks like it's still all in one piece, even though they're very far away from each other. So many questions for the audience already. You like everything that's going on. You want to know more. And you know bad stuff's coming. That's how you do a story. Specifically when you're asking your audience to sit through at least three hours of a movie for the theatrical cut and upwards of four or five hours for the extended cuts. Take that, vape lords. <laughs> Call me when you can make a Viking ship appear out of your smoke. Even this night scene is surprisingly bright. Yeah. I mean, they've got a nice crisp blue moonlight to it going on rather than the uh, gold light from before, but... Yeah, you've got the warm kind of Chinese lanterns uh, giving that warmth, but then, yeah, the the blue from the moon kind of spotlighting everything in that uh, rim light. More Hobbit Easter eggs. And the most adorable kids. Actually, I yeah, think those that are was... adorable uh, children. Uh, I think one of those is... Um, Peter Jackson's kid. I mean, what kind of self-suspecting director doesn't put their kid in a movie? <laughs> I mean, Hitchcock did it. Fun and hijinks. But also, at the same time, we get to see that these two are pretty clever. Yeah. And have a very good knack for getting themselves in trouble. Yeah. And all of that will come into play down the line. And a good bond with each other. Very close bond with each other. Yeah. Although they never mention that Mary is uh, Frodo's cousin. But is he a Baggins? Not exactly. But then again, Frodo's adopted, as we're about to find out. Well, yeah, but he is a Baggins. Yes, that's true. But it's not like he thinks that he's his kid. They know that, right? Yeah, 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 he knows. The comedy and the drama are blended so well in these scenes. We know that there's something really heavy and important happening, and yet there's so much happiness and... Uh, and hilarity going on. Do, do you know what the blend of comedy and drama is called, Jonathan? Dramedy? No, it's called life. Life, yeah, so that's, that's true. What, that's what this scene is. This is life. This is hobbit life. Yeah. This is how the hobbits hobbit. Oops, here's a dragon. Why does that dragon look so much like Benedict Cumberbatch? <laughs> uh, but something I always harp on is trying to make your world feel alive. And this world feels very alive from the get-go. Yeah, especially the Shire. You can tell things happen here, dramas here. There's crazy characters, there's serious characters, there's annoying neighbors, there's all of it. We've essentially created sympathy for a place, for a setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So which is can... why, which is what Tolkien does in the books and which is what makes the scourging of the Shire at the very end of the book so impactful. And I think that 
this setting is set up so well in the movie that, you know, you could have done Scourging of the Shire and, like, just tearjerker for everybody. So that when our when our neighbor when our neighbors when our characters miss the Shire throughout the movie, we feel them missing the Shire. Yeah. We're like, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to just see these people hang out in the Shire? Actually, there's an idea. Sitcom about hobbits. I'm sure that uh, Amazon or Netflix has something in the works. <laughs> We've spoken it into the ether and it is a thing. <laughs> Confused? Maybe we're insulted. We don't know. But Gandalf enjoys the wit. Can't pull anything over on Frodo. We all know because we've seen the prologue. Yeah. We can tell Gandalf knows because he doesn't react. And we can tell Frodo suspects because, well, he's Frodo. Yeah, he's heard the stories, but with the little little yeah. pieces missing here and there. Where everybody's amount of knowledge that they have is just very well kept and managed in this yeah. early part of the, of the story, which is good. He has so many walking sticks. That's very generous. We haven't seen him do that. And it's not like this story is about Bilbo. This isn't his story. But what we're establishing about the ring right now is super important. Yeah. You notice the dramatic angle they went to. Looking up through the ring. And that's pretty much the angle we're going to go to whenever um, whenever somebody's obsessing over the ring for yeah. basically all three films. Especially from the perspective of Hobbit, who we're usually looking down on mm-hmm. from a normal human's perspective. The ring gives them a power. Yeah, it's weird. Because right? that low angle is typically the power angle. Yeah. So looking up at them like that and even looking in this scene you go to Gandalf looking up at him he's got uh-huh. power and he's sane and then, but then suddenly we come- these shots where he turns around he suddenly looks really small pathetic and a little scary yeah and this part right here where Gandalf kind of the candles are still on but all the lights are dim and Gandalf grows that's how Tolkien describes it Gandalf seemed to grow and the lights seemed to dim and that's you know, perfect visual representation, which is not like exaggerated. It's not fantastical, but it gives you that sense and that intimidation factor. Now Gandalf comes down to his level to comfort him. Staging is so important, especially, you know, power dynamics in a scene can be shifted just by having characters stand or sit. And especially when you have characters that are just by their nature, half the size of other characters, setting up these power dynamics with staging is really important. Mm-hmm. This is still a warm, comfy, golden scene, but less so than the past couple. Uh-huh. And now you've got that starting blue. Starting to lose it. It's starting to, starting that, to go away. It's starting to fade. Yeah, that blue coldness is coming in through the window that he's, or through the door that he's about to leave. That thud. That's his hero moment in this movie. Yeah. And now he's blue. Yeah. He's going out into the cold world. Where does he go again? He goes to Rivendell. He goes to Rivendell? I think he travels around more than that, but we meet him back again in Rivendell. He's probably chilling with his dwarves. Yeah, I think he does go back to uh, Erebor, but um, then he kind of comes back and settles in Rivendell and writes poetry and songs and all that. He's looking down on it like a spider you want to step on. Gandalf has the most... uh, the most temptation by the ring so this is 
he's alone with it right now. It's a really dangerous moment, highlighted by that jump scare. Get used to seeing the eye, guys. <laughs> Which that's actually the first time we have seen it. It is the first time we've seen it. After a scene where we've established how dangerous this ring is, so clearly the eye is really dangerous. Yeah. Hey, hey look, weird thing on the floor. I should really Frodo touch it. Frodo picks it up like it's nothing after that thud of how heavy we felt it earlier. He just knows it belongs to Bilbo. He knows there's something about it. Actually, all he knows and all Bilbo really knew was that it turns you invisible. They don't really know the full extent of it. And Gandalf doesn't either at this point. And we're about to see Gandalf leave and go do his research on it. Because he feels things are changing. Man, look how shadowy and contrasty it got all of a sudden. Yeah. We don't have the daylight coming in through the windows, which gives a really good opportunity to just use that warm candlelight. But that warmness is not as... Not as homey and inviting anymore. So now here we're getting little tastes of things that we don't totally know what we're seeing, but we know it's not good. This is such a stark contrast after the last 10 or 15 minutes of Happy Hobbit stuff. And we're compressing a lot of time here too. This time where Gandalf goes to research the ring and the books, it's like nine years that Gandalf comes back every now and then. And I think people kind of stumble over this part when they go back and think about it because they're like, Gandalf just kind of went to Gondor and came back, right? It's like, no, he was gone for years and years and years. And Frodo just had the ring stored away in his house somewhere. Um, never used it, never knew how important it was. Now we're filling in a couple holes. Precious. Magic items that resize themselves to fit the wear. And you wonder where D&D &D got it. <laughs> you wonder where all fantasy stuff got their stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, nobody... I mean, all of this came from, like, an uh, algamation of fairy tales and stories and folklore and all that. But right. uh, the modern set of creatures tends to come from... Tolkien. Tolkien. Yeah. Because no one goes back... No one does the research that Tolkien did on Norse mythology and... All these, I mean, he was a professor. That's what he did for a living. But now he has combined it all so well and so thoroughly that this is the starting point for a majority of modern fantasy. Oh, there's a glimpse of the hairy feet. Yeah. So many rubber feet were uh, harmed during the making of these films. Town gossips. Easier said than done when you're friends with a wizard. Do they, do they have borders? Are they a political entity? I thought they were just kind of there. They they do. They have general, like, across this stream is the Shire. But, yeah, I mean, if you look at the map at the beginning, it's mostly designated by uh, land formation rather than, like, we drew a line here. I like that all that's about to happen is happening after a night of drinking. Right. Dark, creepy, blue... It was probably a less terrifying way for Gandalf to ask him that question, but not a more dramatic way. So many qualities of the ring have been revealed to us so far. The fact that it can change weight, change size, it's impervious, you know, all these things that no one has said. We just see it. We just see it happening. There's that weight again in his hand. I love this effect of the, uh, the fiery letters being projected onto Frodo's face. I love any time that effect is used because it's 
you know, when you think about it, it's not real, but you never really turn off whenever you see that effect. Here's those shots where there's two, two tables happening. It looks so innocent and clean, just like on the table with a couple dishes and stuff around it. It just seems out of place from all the things that they're talking about. Always a good way to get um, exposition out is to have a, a character challenging another. Not just asking questions, but challenging them. Yeah. And typically asking some of the questions in a negative manner, like, but Sauron was destroyed. Yeah. Instead of, how is he still alive? Yeah. And the less experienced character. Asking for information from the person who knows. Yeah. And plus it's already very dramatic. We're into the story. We're dying to know this information. Yeah, essentially this whole movie, at least this first disc, watching the extended editions, is all exposition. You know, we're we're not going to be done with exposition until basically we leave Rivendell. But it's put together with so much other drama and just like little conflicts. You know, they always say you have to have a conflict in each scene. And those are all driving enough that... You know, we can sit down and just have an info dump because we've seen enough of like, okay, there are these creepy uh, horsemen that are coming. There's all this stuff. So now we're curious enough that we'll sit down with them for a little bit and listen to all this info. And now we get answers to some of those things like right here. This is also one of the first times we really get a close look at some of the gnarly uh, Mordor design. Yeah. What all of the um, the orcs are going to look like. And really, if we're new to this, we don't know that much about Gandalf either. So seeing how afraid he is of the ring and also the restraint that he's showing tells us a lot about his character right here. Now, camera gets That's shaky. That's a hero moment, guys. <laughs> That's yeah. what you call it. Camera gets shaky and kind of whipping around everywhere. We're on the move. We're ready to get out of here. Mm -hmm. Look out for the man eating a carrot. I know. Avoid him. Another moment of friendship right before the journey starts. Or so we think. Yeah, and this is a story about the um, the significance um, of seemingly insignificant people, the right. average and the ordinary, as Anytime. represented by The Hobbit. And Sam drops into the adventure. So the ways that they throw all the Hobbit characters together... Oh, this shot is gorgeous. The way that they throw all these Hobbit characters together is really interesting because in the book, we take a lot of time and explain how uh, Frodo slowly moves out of the Shire. He moves to um, this little village right on the edge of the Shire in Bree. And then um, he moves there with Mary uh, and some of his other Hobbit friends. And then they leave one of their friends behind at the new house and all this stuff. But to expedite things we kind of just have to do things like throw sam literally into the mix and then we're literally gonna bump into mary and pippin in a in a minute yeah right obviously pacing is something that you have to take into consideration no matter what story you're telling and in you know novels it's not any it's not that different but in movies with this visual aspect yeah you gotta keep pushing and especially when you're tackling a project this large, you're really going to have to work to cut out all of the um, all of the stuff you can afford to cut out. Right. Condense especially when you're combined. trying to be at least faithful to the uh, 
to the heart of the thing. That's that's Sam's hero moment for this movie. Actually, no, it's not. For this disc, maybe. Sam has a hero moment in all the movies. I mean, that's a nice moment just to be like, hey, guys, we're leaving the golden warm comfort of yeah. the Shire now. And it shows how much more of a challenge a lot of this is for Sam because Frodo already has that adventurous Tukish spirit in him. Sam is just a normal hobbit who just like wants nothing to do with adventures, but he loves Frodo so much that he'll he'll go to death's door with him. Hashtag Tukish. <laughs> this is another nice moment to introduce elves and to introduce the conflict that the elves are facing, which is they are all leaving because their their age is over. In the books, they spend a whole night with the elves and they hang out with them and chat and get some information. But, and I think this is only an extended edition scene, but that kind of gives us that hint before we get to Rivendell and we get the whole explanation of what's going on. You might want to explain the concept of ages, Jonathan. The, <laughs> the ages in Lord of the Rings are just kind of like defined by really major events. So, uh, like when Gandalf was reading those scrolls beforehand, he said that, um, he said it was the the age, the second age, which the second age ended with the uh, destruction of Sauron that we saw in the prologue. So all that we're watching in this in these movies is the third age, and the third age ends with the climax at Return of the King. When the spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen this, but if you haven't seen the movies, don't be listening to our commentary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you shouldn't watch a commentary track the first time, right? The especially our commentary track. Um, but the, the Third Age ends with the destruction of the Ring of Power. Um, so yeah, the, the Age of the Elves kind of is starting to end in the, second, in the Second Age. And then once the Ring is destroyed, they kind of go away because they've screwed enough stuff up on Middle-earth. I like that the two wizards we have in this movie, uh, in these movies, uh, are the White Wizard and the Grey Wizard, which are the two least exciting colors. Right. But they also give us a very nice contrast and an, basically an ironic contrast the way that things turn out. Because Sauron's... When the DP asks if you want any beams coming in through the window. <laughs> more. Yes, I would more. like all of the beams. They must have been choking on the haze in that room. Yeah, but it's interesting because it's not, it's not detracting from the sharpness in the... The faces or anything it's like very restricted to those windows window shafts and it's already faded in this shot here with Christopher Lee just as cluttered as a hobbit hole with just as many candles but none of the warmth Ooh, Jonathan judges everything by comparing it to a hobbit hole <laughs> there's that eye again magic works through a cloth by the way if you didn't connect the dots and I know I didn't the first two times the um, the nine are the nine Nazgul? Yeah, the Nazgul. Who used to be the nine human kings right. who w wielded the rings of power. This counts as elderly ab abuse. This also counts as artistic liberties because this whole battle does not happen in the uh, books. Gandalf is captured. He's just not flung around the room. Wasted no time in this guy being evil. Yeah. Which might make the audience think like, wow, how did Gandalf not see that coming? But also it doesn't give us too much time of 
just watching Sauron or Sauron do a bunch of uh, nefarious thing and Genoff just being oblivious. This double staff shot is so intense. Sick break dancing, bro. Yeah. Burp, Charlie. These contrasts between the setting up the darkness that's coming and the and the Shire is so stark. That's what you get for signing up for the corn maze. You will never get out. A Mary and a Pippin. He says it as he doesn't even realize that he's getting framed. Oh, there he knows. That was good use of a zoom. Yeah. Still that comic relief. This chapter title drop. That's one of the chapters in Lord of the Rings, Shortcut to Mushrooms. We're about to get a really nice use of the, uh, the vertigo shot. Just suddenly the forest opens up and we realize how big it is. Good thing those two are used to stealing shit. Right. <laughs> and here we get a shot that's pretty close to a shot from uh, the 1933 King Kong, which uh, we know Peter Jackson is a huge fan of. Oh, that grimy horse with the red eyes. It's amazing how the architecture of Aradur... Oh transfers even into the costumes of the Nazgul. In my mind, those three shots right there kind of foreshadowed the bug singing from King Kong. Yeah, that's true. This movie does a really good job of do, of the psychological effect that the ring has. Of putting us in that, that foggy-headed zone that Frodo gets to whenever the ring's power starts to draw on him. The shot is almost... We're almost in monochrome now between this blue and black. There's probably a slight desaturation on top of it, too. Oh, gosh. Which one's Mary? Which one's Pippin? I can tell because I've seen them so many times. Yeah, now Mary and Pippin, who were just kind of like... They thought they were just having some fun, but all of a sudden, they're, they're in deep water. Almost literally. Yeah. Ah, 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 ah. Thanks, folks. We'll be here all three movies. <laughs> they can't cross running water, and they can't come, can't come out in the sun. <laughs> Wait, that's vampires. Not quite. If you thought one was bad... Oh, snap. And with this, we've not only left Hobbiton, but now the entire Shire. We get into territory where... Yeah, even, with just, even with just that shot, the fact that he has a top window and a bottom window we realize that men and men and hobbits are living together in this place but we are definitely in the world of man now yeah we've got a very special cameo coming up as we're getting all of these bigotures there's peter jackson with the carrot yeah this is definitely where we're getting those like stilt walkers that have oversized costumes on so that they can be seen in the same shot with the hobbits and we see some of those, too. They'll walk past the camera with their heads out of frame. This is such a fundamental uh, adventuring fantasy moment. You've had a backstory right. that it, it somehow it involved in saving the world, probably, and has driven you out of your home, and suddenly you find yourself in a strange inn with a party of fellow adventurers. <laughs> Waiting for somebody that you hope will show up. At least he's politically correct. Yeah, I like that this guy is desperately trying to not be racist. 
Now we're getting another, just like a hint that we're compressing time because Butterbur hasn't seen him in six months. So we realized that there's a lot of time that we've cut out of here since we last saw Gandalf that they've been traveling. Uh, this makes the introvert in me just like cringe with all these, all these people. I'd be like, don't talk to me, don't talk to me, don't talk to me. Don't worry, guys. One of the other perks is hanging out with Jonathan in a bar. <laughs> uh, Ranger, another D&D class. Ah, oh, so good. Again, we're feeling that dizziness. There's a point in one of the uh, behind the scenes where Ian McKellen asks uh, Elijah Wood, like, aren't you afraid that when you do those close-ups, everyone's going to see that you bite your nails? <laughs> Elijah Wood was just like, no, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, it works. I know, it does. Oh, come on, Pippin. Can't take Pippin anywhere. I like that we've talked so much about how the ring does what it wants to do, because otherwise this scene would not work. Yeah, it doesn't work. It, like, comes out of a Bollywood film at that point. <laughs> and now we understand why it's a good thing that he didn't put on the ring earlier. Right. This is our first perspective inside from the perspective of someone wearing the ring. Which is also a really cool effect that you can like, you can envision it in your mind, this whole like, you can see what's going on, but also you have this really distorted perspective. Well, that was an intense effect. <laughs> oh yeah. If you haven't figured it out, this is an important character. <laughs> I feel like yeah, the movie's giving not, you enough clues. He's not introduced sympathetically like yeah. most of our other characters are. We're intended to be intimidated yeah. by him from he's the very mysterious, beginning. He's mysterious. He's dangerous. Yeah. All of those qualities that you want the character to be known as are wrapped up in the introduction. Yeah. Also, the fact that, you know, bro hobbits are maybe a little... In oh, that's a bad way to go. I know. Um... <laughs> Maybe that hobbits are a little bit unexperienced in the world, but they're brave little suckers. Yeah. Busting in on a guy with a sword with like a candlestick. And a chair or whatever. Butterbur's not taking one for the uh, team. I love this. This is one of those shots that sticks out in my mind. Yeah. The guy being scared and the swords passing by his head. This is such a perfect use of um, the Kuleshov effect to create tension. Cutting between the hobbits sleeping... And this. And they wake up. And then we're like, wow, that's messed up. And the reveal. That, just through the use of editing, creates so much tension and fear. Also, look how many hobbits you can fit in a bed. <laughs> Since it's Aragorn's room, do you think it's a king-size bed? I... <laughs> So run this over with me again. He, he, he's descended from the line of kings, right? Right. And the line of kings lives longer than the ordinary man, even though that power is fading over time. Right. The Numenors have some elvish blood in them, so they live much longer than normal men. Um, but most of them have been scattered at this point, and they're basically... They're basically watchful protectors silent nights or whatever that <laughs> so yeah they Did they're kind of like just hit the camera do what i felt like on that last shot his over the shoulder his hilt there hit the hit the camera at the oh, i didn't see also it was on the other shoulder in the previous shot 
Not that that matters at all, <laughs> right. but I, I was just throwing it out there. Give him a break. It also could have been totally, like, it's totally acceptable that this character has been carrying this for a long time on one shoulder and was like, oh, just man, shift. my shoulder hurts. Yeah. I should really put this on the other shoulder now. And now, now that he's guided them out of, like, literal death, they're kind of totally in his care and under his trust. And it kind of feels, and I think a lot of the characters feel at first when they first inter- meet this weird little band of hobbits. Oh, well, second breakfast scene. Um, <laughs> that they they almost feel like children because they're unexperienced in the world. They don't know all the dangers that and they're they know. small. They're small, yeah. which is very important. They're being judged based on their appearance. So this very much feels at first, I think, for Aragorn and to the audience that he has to deal with these four little kids. Yeah, like a babysitter. him around. Right. But by the end of the movie, that's going to change. And that's what happens to everybody that spends time with the hobbits is they're always surprised. That's what Gandalf says uh, right before he sends Frodo off. He says, you can learn everything there is to know about a hobbit in a day. And still after 100 years, they can still surprise you. And that's just a theme that that the audience learns throughout all these movies because they get put in situations that even the hardiest of people can't endure. Ugh. 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 That's just the peak of... It, it, it just keeps getting worse. Like, this seems like the peak of awful to me. Right. Especially for anybody who doesn't live on the edge of existence like a ranger does or like anybody who lives in the realms of man does here. Um, and we spend enough times with, hob- with, with the hobbits to know that mm. this is so out of their realm. Also, that moonlight rim lighting on that oh, last yeah. one was very good. So these are the scenes. This scene and these travel scenes are the reasons that I only watch the extended editions because this feels like an adventure. You don't... I feel like it's just too... Like you're watching an adventure on fast forward when you watch the theatrical cuts. And for anybody else who plays RPGs out there, it's not an adventure unless you're choosing which watch you're going to take. <laughs> rolling rolling for perception checks at night to determine what you see out in the darkness and what sees you. Yeah. And we're even getting more, like, we're feeling more of the world uh, with Aragorn here describing uh, the Lay of Luthien, the story of Baron and Luthien, which mirrors his own story as we come to, as we come to see. You kind of just miss a couple of those layers when you're watching the theatrical version. There's that eye, but we still have not seen the eye in Baradur. This is a great series of shots. That light streaming in behind him was great. The glowing orange orb contrasts uh-huh. with the blue was great. But also, his fingernails aren't just long. They're inconveniently long. Yeah. Like, it's hard to do things now because your fingernails are so long. Although, to be fair, he didn't have to operate an iPhone or a keyboard, so. This is true. I feel like that tree being pulled down is set up for the next movie. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, that's a major... Waking up on top of a very tall, probably swaying building is my own personal nightmare. Yeah. That that happens... That's that's a reoccurring and nightmare. And then he I walks have. to the edge. He's like, how high am I exactly? Oh, man, I think the eagles are busy this weekend. Even this dialogue. That's all foreshadowing for the Ents. I mean, we're seeing trees we're they seeing, actually pulled down for this movie. Yeah, I don't know. But we're seeing Isengard surrounded by forests, and in the next one, 
we're going to see it completely barren and uh, and filled with machinery. This dude knows his stuff. Oh, wow. I never noticed that you could actually see Aragorn standing. Yeah, the silhouette. Out the, there, the silhouette yeah. sky shots are really good in this movie. And they're, they're consistently used to to make this theme of adventuring. They almost feel like book plates. Yeah. Really find. I mean, we've got um, John Howe and uh, Ethan. Uh, I can't remember the other guy's name, but these two concept artists who drew many, many paintings for the books, uh, for illustrated versions of the books that are the concept artists for these movies. And it translates into the cinematography with... Um, Andrew, wait, Andrew Les Lesney's uh, cinematography, gorgeously. Now that that warm sunset and the blue moonlight mm. has turned green. It's sickly. green. It's necrotic. It's poisonous. You have all these. Their faces are still white and warm, but everything they're surrounded by this just death. And again, that Hobbit inexperience kind of got them into trouble again. Oh yeah. And you know. Merry and Pippin didn't get this rundown that even Sam got a little bit of a rundown listening to uh, Gandalf. He knows he knows something of the danger that they're in. Merry and Pippin know something bad is happening, but they don't know how bad. These tableaus with the swords are so good. <laughs> they didn't even last a second. <laughs> but they still tried. Frodo's like, this invisibility thing will help me against these invisible people, right? I mean, it does feel like if there's a been a time to use this, now is the time. Yeah. And then you realize, oh, wait, maybe that was the worst thing I could have possibly done. Right? Now. Oh, snap. Now we see them as the dead kings. This wound happened so early and has implications through the entire series. To be fair, the bravery and the uh, the heroism that Frodo shows in this movie is mostly that of persistence. Yeah, yeah, like, absolutely. He doesn't he doesn't have a lot of big actions other than not dying, which yeah. is rather impressive, all considering. But he and is choosing spend, choosing to go forward, he is going to spend a lot of this movie or movies almost completely out of it, right? Because he's either sick or wounded or going fucking nuts. This is Peter Jackson just having fun. It's actually amazing. Like, given some of the uh, the gory and, like, body horror movies that Peter Jackson made before this, how restrained these movies are. These flyover shots that turn into these composites. Why do I always remember it as a butterfly? It's a moth. Yeah, it's a moth. Man, that moth's wings are really loud. Yeah. <laughs> so many technologies were created to just accomplish the cinematography in this movie. Like, being able to create a virtual set, and then you have a camera, and basically a VR headset that Peter Jackson would use. And he would move the camera around, and it would be able to see this computer-generated set. I mean, this is only... Six years after, like, Jurassic Park basically revolutionized VFX. And we're already doing so many amazing things. That fly down, it's all seamless. So many of these sets, you know. You know, they had, like, I think they had three sound stages. 
But you know, you're making these these setups for a couple shots and then you're changing it and turning your set into something else. But some of these shots, I mean, we're only seeing these sets for one or I two shots. I have no understanding of how these things are made or born. <laughs> it's got to be magic. But also they're like in these weird muddy amniotic sacks. I don't understand it. Oh my gosh. Being that actor, like, it takes a special person to like willingly put yourself in that cocoon. After being in makeup for like <laughs> right, four for hours. Right, for six hours being turned into an Urukai, and then we're like, okay, yeah, now while I'm wearing all this, you can cover me with this gross yeah. film. Let's let's track down some more lore real quick. So Urukai are... Orcs are the perversion of elves, and Urukai are the perversion of man, right? No, Urukai are created out to be like a more sturdy uh, orc. They're created by Sauron, but he did not take men I don't think and and pervert them I think it's just right. kind of like an evolution of the orc because the orcs came from some elves that yes, wandered the, off to like some lake they weren't supposed to wander off to yeah the and orcs then, were captured like, by not, not even Saruman but like his Melkor, master yeah. yeah Melkor yeah that's a thing too like yeah Sar also, <laughs> store, stone trolls right now that's from the hobbit uh -huh. um, but yeah the the, the bad guy in this movie isn't even the ultimate bad guy. He's like right. the ultimate bad guy's lieutenant. Which is what makes people fall so in love with Tolkien's mythology, is that his it's greatest deep. story is just a tiny footnote in the history of his whole world that he created. Which is the thing. Like, all of the great stories uh, that we know of are that actually happened are all rather small compared yeah. to the large-scale history of the world, including our own stories. When I saw you, it was glow at first sight. Now this is... Eowyn has a... Uh, I'm sorry. Arwen has a pretty small role um, in the books. She's pretty background. So this is uh, a way to actually give her a... Um, a, a more weight. Because, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of bring out that romance with Aragorn if it's there. You can't just let it kind of simmer in the background. Look at all the bright light... And, of course, that's what he's seeing because he's going crazy at the moment. Right. So now we're seeing what she's at. I mean, she's wearing grays and not white and all that. Oh, those wounds and those eyes are so sickly. How many times in this movie does Frodo go, <laughs> a lot. A lot. A lot. But he gets good at it. I mean, repetition leads to improvement. I mean, Elijah Wood was 19 when he made these movies. Is he that young? Yes. He's, it shows. He's... But his performance is fantastic. So the other day I was in line at the grocery store and somebody was having a conversation about trying to figure out who the elf girl was in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and I was Tyler. just like over there under my breath like, it's Arwen. It's Arwen. It's oh, Arwen. the character's name. It's Arwen. Yeah. But it's amazing to watch Liv Tyler and anything else because she's almost like, you know, the ditzy character and everything else. And here she's the most... One of the most uh, impactful and powerful female characters in the film. Elvish horses. Faster than normal horses. But are they faster than evil horses? That is what I we know, must Something about out. elven magic being connected to the source of nature. I don't know. Again, kind of compressing this whole journey. We show a big wide shot, which means that probably took a couple days. And now 
the ring wraiths have caught up with them. And now we have what essentially mounts to like a western horse chase. Yeah. <laughs> happening. I want to say that Liv Tyler legitimately cut her face on that branch a couple shots ago. I wouldn't be shocked. Ugh. Let's put some green-yellow stuff on his face. He looks horrible. <laughs> he looks so bad. But you feel for him. There's, like, time ramping. See, they can't cross flowing water. They're vampires, I'm telling you. <laughs> it's probably actually just, like, the border of Rivendell or something, but... I'm telling you, they follow vampire rules. To some extent, yeah. I guess they're out in the daylight right now, but they have those cloaks. Adding that reverb like, to right. the voice. How about some water horses? They, okay, they definitely did something to his eyes there. Yeah. Oh, snap. I mean, even these effects play off. Those are pretty impressive water horses. Yeah. I mean, it's not so defined that it looks ridiculous, but so, you can still tell what it is. So I've come up with a bit of a theory just based on my own experience working in post-production and what I'm seeing in this movie and uh, Tolkien's commentary on industrialization and mechanization about what's happened in VFX to make it from such a magical experience in this movie to something that feels kind of processed heavy yeah. and heavy-handed in modern-day movies. Um, and it, it's kind of because, I th well, I'm guessing part of it is because it's gone from this thing that used to be special and you do it with a lot of love and care and it took a lot of effort and people were willing to like design new programs to accomplish things uh -huh. to this assembly line type. Uh, we've, we're going to throw 200 artists at this. We have the programs we have to do it and we're just going to get it done. And it, well, there's another element to it, which is that this is, it's practical effects with VFX help. It's not a, well, let's just throw everything on a green screen because we can make it up later. This is, they took the time. They had three years of pre-production to get all these sets ready, get the story hammered out, and uh, and they had their days, you know, mapped out for 180 days, whereas... A lot of times it's just like, we got to get a movie out now. You start your pre-production, you get a couple months, then you start shooting it. Uh, so they're like, okay, well, we'll just throw it on a green screen. We'll figure it out later. Um, but this is really, I think, primarily a testament to pre-production. And now we're back. We're, we're in Rivendell. He's been cured and is healing. Gandalf has escaped. We're about to see how in a flashback. Oh, God, no. <laughs> oh. Jimmy Stewart, you think you were afraid? I mean, there's there's a little work done to get that shot to look like that back there with the moon, but it looks great. So yeah, it does. Again, a lot of these shots, they look like concept art, but they don't. They still look grounded in reality. I will not harp on the eagles. There's been so many eagles jokes. I'll just put in my two cents that Tolkien made the eagles like a really noble race and Jackson just kind of took out all of their uh, elements of them actually being characters who have feelings and opinions about how the world is going. Um, and he had a chance to remedy that with The Hobbit and just totally blew it. 
And here we have that warmth and that hominess again, but it's not the same as the Shire. It's got more magenta to it, which I think it lends it a more magical feel than the yeah yeah right this is this is warm and nice and good and clearly positive and i mean this is clearly a world that revolves around the axis of good and evil so right um this is definitely well within the side of good and it it's warm but it feels a little uh almost a little pinker Mm -hmm. than than uh then the Shire, it feels a little way more otherworldly with the highlight. Like, look yeah. at the highlight back there. Yeah. Um, and for people who aren't familiar, you know, when you're when you're coloring film, you've got four different uh, axes, basically. You've got orange and blue, and you've got green and purple uh, to make it really simple. So we've, we've skewed the green towards the evil side, so this magenta feel gives us much more of uh, a warm... But still, we realize that this is a uh, this is on the good guy's side. Bilbo now looks like he's aged a lot, whereas we, there was a lot of discussion of him not having aged at all at his birthday party, and now it's been a couple months and he's old. If I could go back in time, I'd make a Hobbit with young Ian Holm. I like that this movie knows so well that it's gonna be really long. So we've got to get the audience excited and then we've got to let them like rest for a minute. Uh-huh. <laughs> like and this is us resting for a minute. Yeah. And again, it's part of that adventure. You've got the really fast-paced moments where stuff is happening, but you've also got moments where you're sitting, you're gathering your thoughts, you're making a plan before you set out and you actually put it into action. And we're also setting ourselves up for a ton of exposition that's coming up at the Council of Elrond. And we're setting a bunch of expectations which are about to be changed. Sam wants to go home. Frodo's like, yeah, you know, I was thinking I might have to take it all the way, but now that you now that you say it, I probably just want to go home. That's all about to change. Yeah, yeah. After what they've just been through, going home sounds really nice. Yeah. Even Gandalf agrees. Now we have Elrond, who's a force to contend with, uh, with Gandalf. But unlike Sauron, uh, Elrond actually has Gandalf's same interest in mind. They just have two different ways of going about it. Elrond has a ring. Yes, he does. And so does Gandalf. Gandalf has a ring and then... Galadriel. What's her face in... Mm-hmm. Has a ring. Here we go. Character Oh, hi, Sean Bean. <laughs> Man, I wonder if Sean Bean's going to survive this Who's movie. Who's this new kid? Literally his first film along with uh, Black Hawk Down. I can't remember which is which, but one of the films was shot first and one was released first. So Orlando Bloom is new kid on the block. Now we see how Elrond fits into the larger picture. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we get, get a little some bit of important information about the ring, how it can be destroyed, yeah. how it tempts people. We also and get some information. A huge foreshadowing about the end of the movie. <laughs> right. And we get some information about elves, because I don't think anyone has told us that they're immortal yet. They're kind of immortal. Well, yeah, they're immortal except if they're killed uh, in battle or by grief. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's been stated yet. So now we realize, oh, gosh, Gandalf has lived a long time. Or not Gandalf, but uh, Elrond. Yeah. Like this was like 300 years ago or something, right? 3,000 years 3, ago. 3,000 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, clearly not Aragorn's dad. No. <laughs> <laughs> Isildur, though, is... 
yeah, is whom he, Aragorn is descended from. Elrond has another stake in this whole men's power versus elves' power because Elrond and his brother were given the choice. This is in Silmarillion lore. Elrond and his brother were given the choice of um, being man or elf, and Elrond chose to be elf, and uh, his brother chose to be a man. And I think his brother is where the Numenorians are descended from. I mean, wasn't his brother's name Numenor? No, it was something that rhymes with Elrond, something with an E. <laughs> Because that's how all these names go. They're very similar to each other. Elfron? I don't remember exactly. Inron. <laughs> A little different. And now we get some tension between Boromir and Aragorn. So this is... This whole storyline, though, is kind of messed up with the sword. Because in the books, Aragorn has the sword with him at the beginning. And he knows that he's going to be king. And his biggest issue is will I be a good king he's constantly struggling with whether he is a good leader or not whereas here he's kind of running away from his his destiny and trying to decide whether he wants to be king at all um so that's I'm not exactly sure why that change was made but just kind of setting that stage before we go through the rest of this and Boromir is the son of the steward yes the steward right. who, one of the sons of the steward right him and Faramir. Always make sure your children's names rhyme. <laughs> Aragorn with his history looming over his shoulder. You can't even see Sauron. You can only see his Sildur. And now as he thinks about it, we only see Sauron. Yeah. And he's literally taking the place of his Sildur. Yeah. In the painting. This movie only works because everyone believes it. They're not... It's not kind of jokey and like oh yeah we're playing all these mythical characters everyone believes that they are who they are and it sells the drama acting acting but yeah i'm just saying there's so many ways for this to come off really cheesy and over the top but it's played like it was like it was a historical drama and not like it's a fantasy the diffusion the soft light romance yep now we realize if we were paying attention to that scene where he described the lay of Luthien, that that's his life and that's why it's on his mind all the time. That bokeh, though. Again, out to the wide shot with the mm -hmm. semi-silhouette. Now we just jump into the Council of Elrond. There's no, like... Yeah, there's we, no need. We got set up with everyone coming into Rivendell. I like how everyone's politely seated in chairs. <laughs> so we don't know who any of these people are, but we realize that... Obviously, they're all important. Yeah. <laughs> and Boromir isn't even shy about being tempted by the ring. Right. But also, this is where all these characters are educated on what the ring is. They don't know. You know, in the book, this this council takes like a week. So we have to compress all of that information down and get it all to the audience and to these characters at the same time. Just speaking the language brings darkness on the place. I love that little bit where his voice is still like, like his voice is hurting from just saying those words in that language. Okay, there we go. Now we realize. So this is where we're getting a lot of exposition. So we have to introduce Boromir. And we're even getting exposition on characters that we already thought we knew. We've kind of gotten hints that Aragorn is more important than we thought he was. But now we're like, oh, geez. <laughs> I like how uh, Legolas is just such a nerd that he's like, well, actually, he's not a ranger. He's Aragorn, the son of a king. 
Well, Legolas is a prince too, so you know, we gotta stick together. We princes stick together. <laughs> we can't be upstaged by no steward's son. Gimli's like, okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, my kind of dwarf. <laughs> so much better than like, well, can I hit it with an axe? I'm like, let's just do it. And it tells you something about dwarves, how hasty and uh, impulsive they are. Gloin is one of the dwarves from Hobbit or yes. related to one of them? Yes, Gimli is the son of one of the dwarves that went with Bilbo to the Lonely Mountain. Oh, which one is Gloin? Uh, I mean, he's one of, <laughs> one the, of one the 13 with the funny dwarves. Hat, the one with the axe in the head, the fat one. Well... Yeah, if you're going by movie characters, um, I don't remember. Uh, I mean, I I googled it, but he it, he looks like a dwarf. I mean, I, yeah, they kind of like in, in those movies had to just make some of the dwarves not that important because they couldn't give speaking lines to that many dwarves. I guess. I mean, that's why they put uh, an axe in in one of the heads because that wasn't even in the book. And they were BFFs ever since. So as you can see, what I like that reflection shot in the ring with everybody arguing. Oh, yeah. But the um uh but what Elrond was talking about earlier about the world being divided, not just the races of men, but everybody turned against each other. I mean, this movie's about a lot of things, but one of the things that has to happen for them to succeed is that the world has to get over themselves and work together to accomplish what they want. Yeah. And it's about not underestimating anybody. That is such a powerful moment where Gandalf just stops. He's about turns. to cry, but he's so thankful. Yeah. I like the idea that the task is so tempting that none of the powerful people can do anything about it because it's yeah. so tempting to anybody with any power to do anything about it. So they're all reduced to these assist roles that they're not used to being in. Yeah, because the only one who can do it is the one who needs the most help to do it. It turns all it turns all of the roles on its head and tests the characters in a very interesting way. Right. Man, one of each of the other races and two humans. That doesn't seem well balanced. <laughs> well, four hobbits. Yeah, but if you add them all up... <laughs> what are you trying to say, Alex? A hobbit is less than less than a man. I mean, by weight, yes. <laughs> and the look on Elrin's face, like, who let all these kids in here? And I think this theme, this fellowship theme, we get all the instruments that Howard Shore used. He has different instruments that represent the different races. And this is the one time where they're all brought together in the full theme. And after that, right there. After that, every time we hear the theme, it's broken. It's missing parts of it as the fellowship falls apart. And now it's time for disc two. What a nice, serene way to come back into the movie. <laughs> a big decision has been made, and now we're setting out on the adventure again. We get a little bit of background on Aragorn. And kind of building up that conflict. Because that's the conflict he's going to struggle with the entire time. Because the journey is going to bring him literally to his throne and his destiny a lot of this series is people just being ramrodded down their paths of fate <laughs> right and just like making it work you know what that's called alex life, life. <laughs> 
this is one of those jokes that's starting out in a really smart place and it's going to go <laughs> real dumb real fast. I just know it. It's Look. dangerous to go alone. Here, take this. Tons and tons of Hobbit, Hobbit references. And now the most terrifying scene of the whole series. There we go. That moment. That was such a quick, smooth little transition. Yeah. In the VFX. Yeah. Looks yeah, like it shows we've seen between two shots. We've seen some of the corrupting power of the ring on Bilbo, but now that he's had that break and he has a chance to have it again, it just bursts out of him. And then that catharsis. We've kind of lost a little bit of that pinkness. It's a little bit more grounded and less magical now as they uh, are about to set out into the world again. It's time for reality to hit. Yeah. Or the fantasy reality to hit. <laughs> a little different than the ring bearer you had at your wedding. <laughs> Frodo is given the, the leadership, even though basically everyone else in this party has more like power that. and influence than Frodo does. They give him the deference of taking the lead. I like that he immediately has to ask for directions. Yeah. <laughs> Left or right? Pull back out into this gorgeous wide. I like that elves share my affinity for water features. <laughs> I like uh, I like my water in liquid state. I find it in solid state. It's far too crunchy. <laughs> that music's creeping up on you. It's getting in your face. There we go. This is another moment where... Just the simplicity of using that rock to show the scale differentiation and all their faces. This was like a groundbreaking shot when this came out. This is one shot, all these characters of different sizes than they actually are in real life. Having that scale with that rock there. So in the wides, I'm assuming they use stand-ins for them. Yeah, they have a bunch of little people stand-ins for the um, both Gimli and um, the Hobbits. Because John Rhys Davies is not a short guy. <laughs> this is good. Boromir is not like completely demonized in this movie either. Yeah. We know that he has that temptation and he's misguided, but you know he's still a protector. He's still setting out with them. And here we get a nice scene where he's trying to help. He's trying to train the hobbits uh -huh. and not doing a bad job of it. Hey, look, Balin. <laughs> oh, right. We find out about the fate of Balin in this. Yeah. Yeah, Balin also, who uh, was with Bilbo in the quest in The Hobbit. <laughs> See, Boromir even gets this moment of comic relief. And again, surprising ability from The Hobbits. Yeah. There they go, <laughs> taking down Aragorn. That's no cloud. Uh, are they giant bats? I don't remember. Birds? No, just birds, yeah. But birds that are the eyes of the enemy. That is actually a really cool shot, showing them all hiding, and then, like, you literally just can't see them anymore. It's also just an impressive hide. Are you yeah. sure they're not bats? No, they're birds. They're, there's a swarm of bats in the Hobbit movies. Okay, I see feathers. I thought maybe for a second they were bat birds. Bat birds. I got excited. That sounds like a good concept. Yeah. You kind of get that in King Kong movies. I think the Gandalf pulled his hair back. Yeah, I know. He was like, it's adventuring time. I don't need this hair in my face. Whoosh. Yeah, a lot of the characters have long hair, but you've got to keep it pulled back so the audience can see your face. Also, I like the thought that the characters make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis about 
style. Yeah. About style. Like that, that's a thing, right? Like that's mm-hmm. a thing everybody does when they wake up. This is such a quick scene, but so it's much important. goes into it. Yeah. And really it's just an exchange of close-ups put in the right order to build this tension, but they do a good job of it. Yeah. There's not even any mythic thing. I mean, you can kind of see that the ring is really light. Like, it seems easy. It's tempting Boromir by, like, it'd be so easy just to hold on to it. And that little moment of confusion there, we see Boromir is a victim yeah. in this situation. As you wish. What is this? The Princess Bride? <laughs> Hair tassel. This tension between the men. Again, these flowing one-shots following the birds for anybody who likes the concept of maps and models and things built to scale and seeing the world all in the big picture as i do definitely do these are a glorious set of movies they oh, give yeah. you so much of that oh yeah and again not overblown to the point of cheesiness that just that little shot you see legolas is just like lightly walking across the snow because elves are awesome. No rock giants this time. Nope, not this time. There are giant rocks, though. Anytime you see, like, these snow scenes in movies, it's terrible because they're usually shot on a soundstage and they're shooting, like, rice flakes and stuff in their faces. And apparently, it, it seems a lot of times it's much worse than actually being out in the snow <laughs> with the way it irritates your eyes and all that. And plus, you're on a soundstage, all bundled up as if you're in the snow. I know, and you've got those hot, hot lights on you. You're burning. They're throwing rice in your face. But hey, you're an actor. You're living the dream. Yeah. Feels like that shot was slowed down a bit. Yeah, definitely. But it just feels slowed down. Right. It didn't feel unreal. It just felt slowed down. I mean, there are so many moments in these movies, like in the action scenes, where we've seen. uh, them use slow motion and cut back and forth, but you know, it just kind of fits with the mood that you're feeling rather than actual legitimate time. Again, all these people have a much clearer idea of the world than Frodo does. And but they relinquish a fairly clearer view of the world than we do. Right. But they relinquish that decision making to but they relinquish that decision to Frodo because He has chosen to take the ring, and they're following. That illustration is such a good use of foreshadowing, because we're going to see a real representation of that, but we get to... Yeah, and it's mysterious. Yeah. We don't know what shadow and flame means. We know it means something bad. Oops, somebody broke the aqueduct. (laughs) Again, I was trying to keep tabs on Frodo. This is the little taste we get of dwarf culture. Mm-hmm. Dwarf culture, <laughs> which is my favorite episode of the Anthony Bourdain <laughs> travel series. I'm trying to think of what it's called without borders or something like that. I'm not sure. There's so many travel shows. That looks like a book plate. I always harp on this, but again, I think a lot of modern movies, especially from younger directors, tend to use too many close ups. They just need to take everything. Uh, just set up your scene and then take the camera five feet back from where you were or knock five millimeters off the lens and you probably have a better shot. Yeah. But this, this, I mean, just part of its scale, it's epic. 
but this film is full of fantastic wides, including that yeah. one that I called a book. This one is just gorgeous. One of the, I mean, you one can, of the things about wide shots, though, is that they they prove your set, you know? So it's yeah. easier to get away with small productions in a bunch of tight close-ups with lots of... Uh, with lots of bokeh, throwing everything out of focus. This is but true. this proves production value. Yeah, yeah. You do have to have the money to back it up. But I feel like if you just cut out the widest shot in each of these scenes and just put them together in like a flip book, you'd have a pretty clear idea of what happens oh, in yeah. this movie. Now we're in this kind of ominous, unknown region and we start to get whispers of, you know, monsters and things kind of lurking in every corner. Again, this bit is so short but it just makes the world feel alive and then we get that character development with sam his relationship with bill the pony making trouble don't they only have like a minute to do this in the in the book is it like a time trial uh i think there's a certain amount of time while the moon is right um but i believe Ganoff figures out the riddle on his own Magical things that we never have to explain. We just kind of... Gandalf has got this. Feels like we got away from that thing in the water. Peter Jackson getting to get his his spooky prop design on. Again, like you were saying with that fate, you know, it's just like options constantly getting cut off from them. Going back is no longer an option after this. Which is how all plots oh, work snap. to a certain extent. You get forced to down to only right. two, maybe three choices. And then you're forced to make a really clear, strong decision, which is a good way to make a film work, to have a protagonist work. Yeah. And then you end up being attacked by a tentacle monster. <laughs> which, I mean, the monster is not, like, hidden through shaky camera techniques. Oh, it's very... That shot always makes me really nervous because Frodo is so close to just landing on the sword. Um... But, you know, we get to see the monster, and even the monster doesn't look bad. It's a little bit shrouded in darkness, but, you know, he doesn't stand out as goofy. I kind of feel like they were doing a good job handling that monster. Yeah? Do what you can. Like that book with the fire monster? Something like that. These are some really cool environments in the caves. So, Jonathan, what is the difference between an orc and a goblin? Uh, there isn't, they're called goblins in, um, The Hobbit and orcs in Lord of the Rings. Because Legolas just looked at the arrow and went, goblin. Yeah, they're basically the same thing. I don't think there's, there's a clear distinction or a meaningful Although one I anyway. do feel like orcs are more often than not under the control of. Yeah, maybe goblins are like wild orcs that have been, yeah. that are just kind of hiding in the mountains and that kind of thing. Hope nobody sees that giant glowing light. Yeah. Kingly. <laughs> Frodo's like, <laughs> you, could, you couldn't hear it, but you could see, you could just feel him gulp. Yeah, yeah. You realize. He's so expressive in his face. You see him just realize how far in it he is. Yeah. Which is always farther than he thinks he is. Ah, the old three door choice route. Right. Now, if Jim Henson had directed this movie, one of the doors would lie and one of the doors would tell the truth. What would the third door do? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Give you a little bit of time to sit and then it's a new character. Andy Circus. <laughs> <laughs> I 
still doing exposition, still introducing new characters. And Smeagol isn't even really, or Gollum isn't even really a character in this. So we have all these like shadowy things because in the next movie is when we get the breakthrough, uh, you know, technology of the uh, motion capture. And Smeagol wasn't a hobbit. He was a a member of the river folk, right? Right. Which, Which is, is similar. kind of like a hobbit, but slightly larger. Right. It's very similar to hobbits, except they're not afraid of water, basically. <laughs> Are hobbits afraid of water? Yeah, hobbits don't like water. They don't swim. Uh, like cats. Yeah, pretty much. There's so much taking time to build all of this, like, import and stuff that if we were just, like, you know, marching through the... Just march it through the mines, and then oh my gosh, fire! Fire demon attacks us. You know, you don't get all of this weight that is underlying the whole story. Like the excitement is great, but it means nothing if we don't have these moments of quiet where we can think about the importance of everything that's happening. I like how instructional this movie is about how to approach life and think about the world. Yeah, like even decisions. like Gandalf is telling him right now, like you know what? Nobody knows everything. Yeah. Don't be, don't be so rash. Don't be so quick. We can't. Yeah. yeah, what he says is we, we can't choose what happens to us. All we can choose is uh, what to do once it does. Mm-hmm. So you know, and each of the characters kind of feels like they represent a different error and and a way to overcome it too. Like right, you know, Gimli's rash and wrathful, and Legolas is proud, snotty. The hobbits are brave and good, but. They don't but, know anything about the world around them. Yeah, just physically weak and naive. I mean, and, you know, the entire community of the Shire has, maybe not intentionally, but has made a decision to remain ignorant of the rest of the world. Yeah, and removed. Yeah. And they don't realize how much of an impact they actually have. Whether or not you like it, the world will come a knock in one day. Yeah. Which is, again, why I wish we got Scorching of the Shire in these movies. It's a real big hallway. How does one use that practically in a city? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. And you've got, I guess, rooms jutting off. I guess it's just a big hallway with a bunch of rooms. Uh, It's just a gathering place. It's like a courtyard, I guess, for people that live under a mountain. Yeah, yeah. I find that a lot of the best fantasy tales happen at these points in a world's history where stuff has crumbled to a certain extent. Yeah. So you can tell that, you know, before even Gimli's uh, dad here tried to take this back, it was a long, long ago a well, major... Well, Balin is not Gimli's dad. Balin is a different one of the dwarves. Right, right, right. My bad. Before Balin tried to take it back, it was long ago a super stronghold, super powerful yeah. dwarven kingdom. And there used to be powerful elven kingdoms as well, but that's all kind of crumpled. And yeah. the, the kingdoms of man aren't doing too hot right now either. Right, but they're the whole, throughout the arc of the story, the, the kingdoms of men are on the rise. And that's where we get to at the end is the age of men. Um, and I guess the only one that's really at its peak is the, the Hobbit civilization. And that's where we start. And the age of the hobbits <laughs> that they didn't even know. It's almost more ominous. Like, I feel like it would have taken us out if we had done some kind of thing where as he's reading this, we're seeing flashbacks. Yeah, right. I mean, it's set up exactly for the moment when they start hearing the uh-huh. drums. It's so much more ominous to just imagine it. Oh, 
Oh, man. Oh, not good. We get these wide shots of how huge these caverns are. That just all got a little warning message. <laughs> that was a painful, painful experience. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, that looks like all bad. the characters survived that one. Even Gandalf has his limits. Oh, you done messed up. That's great. With the, just like the reflection of the fire. And they're stuck in this little room. You know, there's nowhere yeah. for them to go. They just got to make a stand. Oh, yeah, you're right. The, the, so the blade glows blue for both orcs and goblins. Yeah, they yeah. They clearly are related. I don't think they ever actually fight the cave troll in the book. I think Frodo stabs the cave troll's foot that it sticks through the door, and then it runs away. And then there's just a really big goblin that they fight. I'd run away if you stabbed my foot. But, <laughs> right. I mean, that's why it's called Sting. This is the first time we get to see them fight and defend mm -hmm. themselves. It's kind of a nice introduction to this battle situation. And it's also the only time we get to see them all fight at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are so much smaller than they are later. You know, once we get the Helm's Deep and everything. This is just them just trying to survive. They're just stuck in a room, you know? Yeah, this is well before we split the party, like, three ways. Yeah. There we go. This is the big set piece for the movie. The cave stroll still looks good. He still blends well with the scene. These fight scenes do a really good job of keeping us oriented and also letting us see all the fighting. Like, we're not trying to hide choreography or anything. Mm -mm. But it's still, like, shot dynamically. You can tell this fight scene was written, too. Yeah. Right, like, this wasn't a, then they fight. It was a, <clears throat> this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Right, and you and can't it's really... it's all designed for a purpose. Especially with, with this CG cave troll, you can't really improvise that. So you've got to have it all worked out. Yeah. Like and the each one kind of... The fight choices are clever. Like, this happening right now is... Yeah, like I was about to say, each, each character kind of uses their own particular skills, like this, with Sam using his frying pans. You know, everyone is fighting in their own way. Yeah, the characters don't get lost in the fight. And this Even is when Frodo gets threatened and then everybody's like, oh man, we really yeah. should protect that guy. This is such a terrifying, like, little hide-and-seek moment. It's it like also kind of recalls the whole, um, uh, hiding underneath the wood earlier. Yeah, that's true. Oh my gosh, that's unpleasant. Oh man, I would not want to be grabbed by that thing. Nice. Aragorn to the rescue again. Oh, that's a good stab. Yeah, too. I know. Just it like is. right up under the ribcage, straight to yeah. the heart. Even the fact that the two of us who know nothing about stabbing things <laughs> right. can tell that Aragorn is a good. Oh man, I forgot he got stabbed again. Yeah. He gets stabbed a lot. Yeah. This is terrifying because everyone thinks this is it. This is over. And instead of giving up, they fight harder. And quick shots, everybody swinging their swords. Sam goes straight to Frodo. It's a good thing the cave troll's not like hungry. He's not trying to eat them. He's just trying to hurt yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing those little moments. Like the cave troll put his hand to his wound and looked at it, and you know. It's almost like, I mean, he's just a creature. I love that everybody fought in their own, in their own style. And even down to like the weapons they use is different. Yeah. 
it's a distinct and varied party. You know, you've got sword fighters, but no one fights the same. You've got a wizard with a sword, you've got a ranger with a sword, and you've got a fighter with a, a sword in a Boromir with his buckler and uh -huh. sword. And here, all the characters have gotten a little primer That's on Mithril. right there. Yeah. All the characters have gotten a, a primer on Mithril. And if we were paying attention, we kind of pick up, oh yeah, that vest was <laughs> pretty good. There's that theme again. Good thing the name for that bridge doesn't have any ominous words in it, like doom or <laughs> gloom or... Regardless of what language it is. And now it's just a big chase scene. We've, we've had our fight. Now yeah. let's, let's GTFO. This is one of the most like skin crawling bits for me when orcs are literally like streaming out of the ceiling right here. Oh, it looks like spiders crawling out. I know. It's like nightmare fuel. Yeah, I think goblins are like a little smaller, a little more creepy crawly, like scaling the walls and stuff. Yeah, because they've been, I mean, they've been Savage, forced underground wild. for so long. Those little close-ups of the makeup are so nice. There we go, that orange contrasting with all this blue darkness. And something that the orcs won't even face. They'll fight alongside the cave troll, but they won't fight alongside whatever this is. We're taking our time getting to this reveal. Look how sad Gandalf is. He's like, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> he knows what's coming. That's both on an honest assessment and a bit of a put down. Yeah. And now everything suddenly becomes flooded with orange. Danger, fire, depths of hell. Ooh, that chanting. Yeah. They literally wrote like a... Uh, Choral lyrics in uh, Dwarvish from oh, Tolkien's language, and so it like really fits the scene and the world. I think they do the same thing with a lot of the the Elvish scenes in Elvish, of course, not Dwarvish. Dwarfs or elves, Jonathan? <laughs> Never toss a dwarf. No, make a choice. Which is your favorite, dwarfs or elves? Oh, I gotta go with elves. Nah, I'm a dwarven man myself. <laughs> I like that some of the goblins haven't given up either. Yeah. They're just hiding. Always make it worse for your characters. There we go. Legless headshot. That was shot. a good, like, essentially like a bullet time shot yeah, into the yeah. head. But arrow time. A medieval fantasy bullet time. Oh. That's another thing that, that doesn't get fleshed out too well in these movies is uh, Legless and Gimli going from being kind of Oh, from lack hating of a better each word. other? Yeah, from being like racial rivals to being best friends, which all happens in Lothlorien. I mean, they definitely end up being best friends in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get that, but we don't see that. We don't see that change because we see that we see the tension at the Council of Elrond, and then suddenly they're just kind of friends. Again, being on a large, tall structure over a deep, bottomless pit <laughs> that's swaying. Oh. Aragorn looks like he's practiced this. Like, I know how to maneuver this thing. That's a character who's been in some spots. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, yay, they got away. They'll be all safe now, right? Right. A moment of relief. You think you'll be okay. Oh, those flames just, like, spurting up out of nowhere now. From nowhere, Jonathan? Don't they have a source? Shadow and flame. Here we go. If all you have to go on is a description of a character with wings 
who is comprised of shadow and flame. Like, I don't know how much better you could actually come up with character design for this guy. I like that when he hit the bridge Air, while he was running, Aragorn slowed down a bit. Like, okay, let me just gauge right. this real quick. <laughs> it's totally, because that's what you, what you would do. Uh-huh. We gotta go fast, but falling off the bridge isn't gonna help. Oh boy, that's intense. I'm trying to remember lore on the Balrog right now. He's, um, he's one of the evil creatures. He's almost on a par with Gan with the wizards. Basically, he's right. kind of the evil, one of the evil magical creatures on par with the wizards. So this is a, this is a pretty even fight right here. Right, because the wizards are sent there by the good gods. Right, but they're... They're basically wizards are basically angels, and the the Balrogs and creatures like that are are basically demons. It goes deeper than that, though. Like the gods of the world are like angels of the one true. Yeah, God there's in another this world. layer in there. Yeah, it gets really deep. Just like Sauron is actually like the psychic of the other guy. Right. The point is, Gandalf knows he's got to take care of this this guy. Ah, oh, such a good line. Oh man, this is so the slow motion, the echoes. That single voice coming in from the score. I mean, this is the first really dramatic moment we've had. We saw like Isildur die, but we were like, he was kind of messed up anyway. Yeah, this is the first feel of loss that the characters have had since the start of the movie. There's such a great scene of grief. Like and they're about to they're about to talk about this, but I mean Gotta take a minute, man. <laughs> but yeah. also, they're being chased. Also, all the audience is feeling it right now. This is the first time you've seen this? Yeah, yeah. As the sound effects slowly come back in. Boromir's the one asking for compassion on them. Aragorn's making hard leadership choices now that Gandalf's gone. Yeah. Even though we've passed what is the climactic point of this film in the trilogy... There are still important character developments happening. Frodo and Aragorn are both feeling isolated. Like both of their security security nets have just been cut away. Man, that is a gorgeous landscape. Yeah, it looks freezing. <laughs> still, all those Foley sound effects are muted almost entirely. Now we get some of that pink back in coming into an enchanted another enchanted land. With a slightly different kind of elf. Right. We get our introduction to this through the dwarf's eyes, which taints everything that we see, but he's got a... And it's definitely not as inviting as Rivendell. I like that we don't even see them. We just see their arrows. Right. That rivalry is full-blown here. Now it's night. We can see how long it's already taken them to try and... Because it takes them a long time in the books to actually get into Lothlorien and convince them that it, that they're okay. That's a lot of shade being thrown. Gaze upon the face of evil. <laughs> the bright blue eyes of evil. <laughs> Even this, taking this time to get into Lothlorien builds the mystery around Lothlorien. And it gives us a little bit of time to process. Even with that cold reception by Haldir, he becomes important later on. You can learn a lot in this movie about how to properly and how to not properly deal with emotions. Yeah, right. 
What is this movie without amazing uh, establishing shots of every single realm that they go to? Man, these elves seem really into wood. Almost like wow. they're in wood that elves. pan. In that pan, we went from day to night, and all the lights turned on just seamlessly. You don't even notice it. That's the first time I've ever noticed it in that <laughs> one shot. And I'm sorry, that was a tilt. I don't have to be <laughs> get technical on myself. This is such a cool idea. Coolest treehouse ever. Oh, those leaves on the ground are the same shape as the uh, the clasps that they're going to get on their robes. I, I do love this treehouse. I could really go for hand railings, but that's <laughs> just me. Elves like to glow a lot. Yeah, this. I don't know if this is an iris rack or what, but going from that super bright down to... I mean, it's still glowy, but more normal exposure. I mean, that could easily just be a color grade. Yeah. Oh, man, these so much is conveyed just through these eyes in this scene. And that eye light, I don't know what they use to get all those little tiny points of light in her eyes, but it's magical. And as far as conveying telepathy, yeah, right. this is really both spooky and effective. It's also a very good way to establish that she's the power here. Yeah. Uh, the other dude's just kind of there. Yeah. I mean, Caliborn is powerful, but she's uh, she's the one to reckon with. She's the ring, the ring bearer of her own ring. Right. They have like the rings, the three rings. The, right. That the were three rings the for the elves. Kind. Yeah. Water, air, and fire. But I don't know who is who's. Oh, that's great. Here comes that telepathy in a second. And you can already see it affecting each of the characters. Foreshadowing and encouragement. So much happening right now. Oh, snap. And there you've got those songs written in Elvish that fit the, the mood and the story. We've only seen Lothlorien so far in like two or three shots in the daytime. And all the rest is this really soft blue and white which is accenting the grief and the mystery of this place. Mm -hmm. Plus just the point we're at in the movie, having a bright day scene right now would be inappropriate. Yeah, especially coming out of such dark tunnels. You tried, Sam. We're getting a lot of little whispers of things that we're going to be thrown very deeply into in the third movie. That's another part of the exposition of this movie is just... Setting up through each of these characters the different um, places that we're going to be going to. I love that right now, like this exposition that we're getting from Boromir is very much like, oh, we have to talk about this thing now because we have to talk about this thing now. Not yeah, no, it's it's exposition through character development. Yeah, he's, not he's so conflicted, like it makes sense for him to be homesick and talking about home and also worried about his home mm -hmm. and hoping... Hoping that he's going to be able to come back to it and save it. Mm. And he knows that Aragorn knows all these what all these things are. So he doesn't have to be um, oppressive in the way that he describes it. Yeah, yeah. But he can be excited about it because he can talk to them like equals and just like be emphasizing. Yeah. So it tells us a lot, but it's it doesn't feel forced. Kate Blanchett does such a good job of, I think in the book they describe Gladriel as almost floating rather than walking. And you totally can get that sense from just the way that she moves. 
And they put so much light on her back. She's glowing so hard. <laughs> and then there's those hairy hobbits. <laughs> the down-to-earth character who is suddenly being thrown into this mystical world and the embodiment of the mystical fantasy thing that's going on here. I like how there's kind of there's kind of no rules to this mirror. It's not like, oh yeah, you're totally going to see whatever. Yeah, it's not the mirror of Erised. It's more like, this is a powerful thing that's going to happen, and we don't know what you're going to see. Yeah. And even the future things, it's like, it's not necessarily something that's going to happen. It's just the way things are going right now, this is where they're going to end up. And actually, I forgot that he does it in this movie, but uh, Sam follows Frodo to look in the mirror in the book. Um, and Sam sees the scorching of the Shire, which is what Frodo's about to see. This is a... This is about as much of that as we get, but we do, we get that sense of danger and we get all of that sympathy that we've built up for the Shire is suddenly like, oh man, this is a real, a real danger of what's going to happen. Nothing is safe. Oh, and the steam. Because you know every... Pretty much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Talking is for losers. I like how she's just flipping back and forth. All of these things, what Gandalf pulled him aside for earlier, this all culminates in the decision that Frodo has to make at the end of this movie. We've already seen what the temptation does to Gandalf. The Hobbit has to take it because the Hobbits have, have no power, no desire for power. Those with power would only have more and more power and the ability to use their power wrongly. This is the first of the other rings that we've seen. In the wild, if you will. What ring do you have? Nunya. <laughs> oh, what kind of ring is that? Nunya business. That's about right. There, decision made. Oh, here, now we get that background. Or at least as much of it as we need for the movies. So yeah, the Urukai are just orcs that have been further mutilated. <laughs> do you think they train them? Or do you think they're just like, here's some heavy weapons, go have fun. <laughs> Yeah, they probably just hatch them, stick a weapon in their hand, say, get angry. Yeah, they can always hatch some more. It was really interesting because, you know, taken in the, in the whole tier, Melchior falls because he basically has the same arc as Lucifer in the Bible. He wants to be like the one God and, and take over that role. And you hear Sauron is trying to basically one-up Sauron, who is above him. He's basically playing Lucifer to the bad guy in this movie. Now we get introduced to a lot of things that are going to come in handy throughout the rest of this journey. That's not good. What if instead of taking boats, you took barrels? <laughs> Sneak past the enemy. But seriously, these That's boat a great designs... Wide. That's a great wide. These boat designs are amazing. Setting up so much merchandise... They all have a really important role to play. <laughs> Sam's like, rope? I get rope? She just shuts that down real quick. Gimli changed his tune. Mm-hmm. Again, this is another point that could be so cheesy, but it's played off really sweetly and dramatically. Wow, the background behind her kind of went dark as she was saying that. Just a really subtle light change to emphasize what she's talking about. This is why I can't be in movies, because I don't have blue eyes. 
I think it's just like a restriction. You just can't can't be in movies if you don't have blue eyes. I've got blue eyes. <laughs> I've got eyes for podcasting. You have eyes that'd be good on radio. <laughs> a lot of these things don't even become useful until much later. <laughs> what do you do with that? Just I think he it? actually takes it and uh, and puts it in a jewel or something and encases it hmm. later on. But it's really smart that they didn't actually show that because if they had shown like three little strands of hair really like creepy. in a knapsack or something. Again, all of these landscapes. Yeah. Shout out to <laughs> New Zealand. I know. Like what if uh, I think uh, America's landscapes have been shot out too much. It would have a totally different feel. I mean, for an American audience, shooting in a different country is a good way to bring about fantasy. Yeah. But I mean, even if you like did it in England or something, like the New Zealand landscape just lends itself. Of course, now it's like the default shooting location for fantasy, but. This commentary brought to you by the uh, Travel Board of New Zealand. <laughs> you thought you couldn't fit one more fight into this movie? Even with that foreshadowing lead up of all the Urukai running through the forest, we still get a moment to stop and foreshadow Gollum. There's just so much foreshadowing. This is a good little exchange. It's going to set up the entire next movie for these two. Yeah. And we've already set up what leads Frodo to make the decision he's about to make. And now we're understanding the thought process behind the decision Sam's going to make in light of that. Sam's going to be saying that to Frodo a lot soon. It's like hearing your parents fighting. Now, this is really cool. You want to talk about wide shots. All these like down angles and then with the camera slightly moving like it's on a boat too. Epic. Mount Rushmore's got nothing on these guys. And there's so much detail down to you can see where the blocks of stone are individually chiseled out. Leave it to Gimli to lift the spirits. <laughs> Pippin's excited. <laughs> Sam's over there already asleep. Ghibli knows one does not simply walk in the mortal. <laughs> Do you feel it in the water or the air, Legolas? Now there's been a lot of tight shots that kind of confuse the geography. So we, we don't even notice that we've kind of lost track of two of the characters until right now. Again, like you were saying, Alex, all these ruins just building, building life into this world. Nobody knows what any of this is either. It's just like, oh, hey, there's an old ruin here. Right. They were, yeah, I think Aragorn does, but it's not, it's not ever explained, at least in the movies. They were like watchtower seats or something. Again, playing with that power dynamic. Are you? I like even the recognition by Frodo that Boromir, this isn't Boromir as a person doing this. This is a corrupted Boromir. Yeah. And he's trying to reason with him. He lashes out for a minute, but he almost immediately realizes. So that's why here he sits in this ancient watchtower seat and then he has this premonition. And there's the first time we see the eye in its place in Baradur. Almost the opposite of what happened in the pub when he fell and put the ring on. That voice that's just like, oh shoot, is Aragorn taken too? A lot of choices being made. 
And also, definitely a little kid's hand there. <laughs> yeah, but also, as he closes the ring that we're looking at in Frodo's hand, Aragorn's ring is kind of takes his place. Aragorn definitely set up as a foil to Boromir in this that scene. Oh, good. There's only like a hundred of them. <laughs> no problem. Totally untrained. They have no idea what they're doing. Nah. But that's important. Safety in numbers, though, right? One side is throwing its faith in fewer people, but people of high quality. Yeah. And the other side is throwing its faith in just sheer quantity. Yeah. In brute force. Oh, yeah. Those horns coming into the soundtrack, almost like a foreshadowing, is all told through eyes. Everyone's doing their part, whatever they can. Again, there we go. Boromir's redemption. Again, not, not a totally evil character. I mean, his is a story of tragedy, right? Yeah, Shining yeah. In the ring. This tragic flaw. This does a good job of kind of showing like how hard it is to coordinate a fight over such a large space. Pace of the editing is rap is ramping up right now. Yeah. The hobbits really are impressive. They just keep going. You can tell he's a main character because he doesn't have a helmet. <laughs> yeah, Lurtz isn't a, actually a character in the book, but adding him, like creating one of the Urukai for us to identify with, like literally watching him from birth to uh, this point. His reverse grip on that bow is bugging me. You only shoot a compound like that. All right, Alex. Again, he's not trained. I mean, Boromir is supposed to be a representation of the race of men, right? Like, yeah. deeply flawed, but a lot more power and a lot more bravery than you think. And the idea of him going down fighting. We see, like you were saying, a lot of these uh, civilizations of men, as we come to them, are crumbling, and yet they're fighting. Always fighting. It is but a flesh wound. And the horn's already cloven in two. Well, they tried. I like how their daggers are essentially like full-blown swords for them. Right, right. Again, we get this nice one-on-one -on -one because we've seen we've seen so much of Lurtz, and he seems like you know just a little bit better than all the other Urukai. Oh, I think these movies are rated PG-13 instead of R because the orc and Urukai blood is black. And they don't do things like Tarantino gushing whenever true, <laughs> like an true, arm true, gets true. cut off. And it's the the humans that are killed in the film are killed in very different ways. Yeah, they're not usually gory deaths. And the scene kind of sets up Aragorn as the savior of men. Yeah. I mean, I guess this one dies, but... <laughs> but he basically... It's a good death scene. Yeah. Full of failure and redemption and success all unfolds. And Boromir, who felt challenged by Aragorn earlier, now realizes that Aragorn has less corruption in him than he does. And getting so much character development on Boromir here sets up a lot of our feelings of Denethor later on. Yeah, you get why Boromir is the way he is. Yeah, well, <laughs> later you, yeah. On. You're like, oh, your parents messed you up. But and there's he so still many. Ended up being pretty okay. Yeah, there's so many dynamics 
with Denethor and Faramir later on. We get to see... Also, just how much it means to Boromir clearly that he said, our people. Uh-huh. And then my captain, my king, he's willingly handing over the throne to Aragorn. Which he should do anyway, but mm-hmm. it's just... it's a Because yeah, there definitely is a realm of existence in which... You know, Bormir was next in line to be steward of the kingdom. Right. If Aragorn didn't take on his role as king, which is what he's struggling with in this in this story anyway, this movie. And Aragorn still lives longer than normal man. I think he's supposed to be like 70 or something. Yeah, they say later he's, he's 70 or 80. But he looks the equivalent of a typical human's like 30. Right. Maybe even younger because it's a hard world. <laughs> right. People used to look older. Yeah, very rugged. You get rugged faster. Nice shot. Simple colors. But most of the warmth of the sun is gone. Very true. It's still daylight, but it's not warm. We already know why why Sam is so adamant about following. Seeing the pain in in his face as he remembers Gandalf. Behind the scenes story, uh, as Sean Astin was doing the scene running out on the beach, uh, one of the takes, he just like kind of collapsed into the water and had to get drugged back out because he stepped on a piece of glass which went through his rubber hobbit foot and into his foot. A lot of people injure their feet in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Apparently hobbits can't swim. Yeah. Even though they're... And you could see it earlier when they got in the boat from... uh, from Lothlorien and Sam was like r- rickety and uh, terrified. I don't know if this is done in a tank or if this is uh, dry for wet, but this is so gorgeous. Just that, those couple frames where Sam's hand grabs Frodo's. Now that warmth of the sun is back, it's not as cold anymore. Now he's going to have to sit in the boat Stripped of his clothes to dry off so he doesn't get <laughs> hypothermia. Right. It's okay. Soon he'll be wishing to be that cold. And this burial even becomes important later on when we meet Faramir. Now Aragorn really has to make the leadership decisions on his own. He's got a big one. This is every DM's nightmare. <laughs> Let's split the party permanently. Yeah, it's either... Maybe save Frodo and Sam, and definitely Merry and Pippin are going to die. Or we could probably catch Merry and Pippin and just hope for the best with Frodo and Sam. I like it, a still strider to them. Yeah. We're hearing that faint whispers of the Shire music again. With a very not Shire visual. <laughs> right. Imagine having to wait a year after this. But all we got to do is put in the next disc. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And uh, we will check back with you on uh, The Two Towers. <laughs>